This Week at Hope Point. We're apologetic about the judgment of God because normally our lives are so isolated and so protected by our design that we do not even know and see the real suffering of the world. We're seldom oppressed by anyone. We don't live under an oppressive regime. Our problem is, the reason why we don't sing like this, we're not poor enough. We're not oppressed enough and we're not persecuted enough to rejoice in the justice of God. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, fellow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's Holy Word. I have a friend that I went to school with at Clemson. I stay in touch with regularly. He's a much more avid Clemson fan than I am in the sense that he's either at games or watching them. But as Clemson makes its way in the past few seasons toward the end of the season, doing well toward the playoffs, he can't watch a game on TV until after the game is over and he knows how it's going to end. So he records it. Really, that's the primary purpose of the book of Revelation is because of the intensity of the suffering and evil and the battles of earth. It tells us over and over again how the the end of history concludes that the church triumphs and the church who suffers with Jesus will also triumph with him. Whether so you're a Christian in the first century or you're a Christian in the 21st century, the ultimate hope that produces endurance for suffering, for suffering believers is full confidence that Jesus is returning. That meant everything to the, to the early church. Now, we have seen and are seeing in the book of Revelation, if this is your first Sunday here, then the book is pretty easy to figure out once you understand the pattern that John's going to say the, three, the same thing three times. First, he takes us through seven judgments that are called the sealed judgments. At number seven, Jesus returns, evil is defeated, and the church is rewarded, and you think the book is over. Then he begins the same story again with another set of judgments called the trumpet judgments, seven of them, at the end of which time evil is defeated, Jesus returned, the church is rewarded. You think it's over. And then for the third time that we'll see in a few weeks, he starts again with seven more judgments called the bold judgments and the same ending, Jesus returns, evil is defeated, and the church is rewarded. And the reason for the repetition is clear. It's so easy to doubt, is it worth it to serve the Lord on earth? Over and over again, you need to hear and see exactly how he's going to triumph over all evil. So we're in the middle of that seventh, I mean, the second set of seven, the trumpet judgments. We're going to look at number seven today. And the, the verse that sort of is just epitomizes everything he talks about is found in verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So the last time that we were in Revelation 11, we had seen a very difficult time for the church. The world was hostile. The, world, the church was bold, but so bold that the world was actually putting the church to death to the point that it looked like the witness of the church would be snuffed out. And all of a sudden, God resurrected the witness of the church. And as a final declaration of God's favor on the church, he sends one more judgment. 
the final judgment to the world. And that's where we'll begin today. It occurs a few verses before this climactic ending in verse 15. So in verse 13, the final judgment of, of, of this series in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed and the third woe is coming soon. So again, we're in the second set of judgments called the trumpets. And interestingly, in this second set of seven judgments, they all end, fifth, sixth, and seventh, end with the word woe because they're so severe, so traumatic, the only biblical word that's appropriate to describe what's happening is the word woe, which was used with the most severe consequences that normally would occur when God was acting in history. So you have all of these woes, and at the end of the woes, there's an you know, and you got this earthquake that happens, and you know, people always want to know, is it a literal earthquake? All we know is that some type toward the end of the world, some type of such a global calamity that is so severe, it's called woe, and we don't know of anything more severe than when the earth shakes under your feet. If you've ever lived through an earthquake, and it, it's so strong what's happening, it causes the survivors that survived this earthquake or this global calamity to glorify the God of heaven. Now, that's a troubling phrase for us because up to this time in Revelation, every time God acted, there was no repentance by the world. They watched, and the more that God moved and judged, the more the world defied. And we were curious, what does this mean? Does it actually mean that there was a great spiritual revival? Well, I'm with you. If your heart says, man... I want that verse to mean exactly what it looks like it means. I'm with you 100%. I so hope that as the global calamities around the world increase, there will be revival in every nation of the world. But I personally believe it doesn't mean that at all. And as I'm teaching the book of Revelation, I always say to you, I reserve the right to be wrong every week I stand before you. But I'll tell you why I don't believe it's a great revival that happens there. I think it's just terror of dying. Um, when it says the survivors were terrified, that word is never used of people coming to Christ in the Bible. There is a fear of the Lord where people revere the Lord, adore the Lord. There's never a terror that drives people to Christ. Terror is normally used when they think they are about to die. So we'll say, I think this passage is most likely talking about a fear-induced acknowledgement of God's reality. Say another way, circumstances are forcing them to acknowledge God's reality and their mortality. They know they are about to die with the earth trembling beneath their feet. Now, there's lots of evidence in the Bible where people encountered God and they should have repented, but they didn't. One comes to mind in Daniel chapter 2 and 3, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream Daniel the prophet interprets it. Nebuchadnezzar is scared about what not being able to understand his dream. And when God miraculously sends this man Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar says, Your God's the God of heaven. In chapter two and then chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90 foot tall tower and tells everybody, and he builds it to another God and says, Worship the idol 
or I'm going to kill you. Worshiping God in chapter 2, persecuting believers in chapter 3 if they don't worship a fault to God. So his terror in chapter 2 was short-lived. Then we think about the Roman guards that saw that were there when Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus had been nailed to a cross, beat to a pulp. They, they knew he was dead. They placed his body in a tomb, and they were guarding the tomb. And the Bible says the, the next morning an angel came, or two mornings later an angel came. There, there was an earthquake. The angel rolled around the tomb, or, I mean rolled away the stone, uh, there was glorious, radiant light from the angel, and probably they saw Christ walk out. But there's no evidence, there's no word at all in the New Testament that these guards came to Christ. They were just terrified, but they were not devoted and filled with affection for the Lord. Then you think about the people in the days of Noah. Uh, for 120 years, Noah built an ark. He said, it's going to rain, there's going to be flood. And when the water started rising, for 40 days, it was a furious rain. And you can imagine when the water started rising to their chest, they knew they were going to die. But the ark had been closed, and the Bible does not tell us that anybody repented. They were just terrified. So it's possible to see God, to see calamity, and yet not respond in repentance and devotion. A modern-day example of this would be New York City after 9-11. All of the studies that have been, uh, you know, that studied what happened to churches in the year following 9-11, when the Twin Towers fell, that church attendance rose for a period of months. But within a year after 9-11, church attendance was back to normal, and in many cases, it was below when it started on 9-11. People saw the, the worst of evil, uh, 2,977 lives lost in one day in America, nothing ever like it, and, um, and yet there was no repentance at all when you look at New York City today. If you look at the city today, you look at the state today, you look at the, the representatives and you look at the governor of New York and the values of the people who voted them in, it seems... Well, it is utterly tragic of the decline of righteous desires in New York. It looks like that the people of New York are more eager than ever to invite evil to come into their city, even after witnessing the greatest loss of American life, greatest life on American soil. So let me just say that generally speaking, normally when there is calamity, or you, you know, or death, for a moment people will think about God, but they soon will, their, their thoughts of God were fleeting. So when we look at this verse, I don't really know what it means for culture in general. I do know this. You can look at this verse and you can say, you know what? I'm looking at New York. I'm looking at what's happening in the school systems. I'm looking at what's happening with unbelievable decline of values all around us. And I see calamities. I see the coming global food crisis. And I am going to turn to Jesus Christ regardless of what my culture does. Then you let that verse apply to you. You say, well, that verse is going to be true for me. I am going to glorify the God of heaven and come to Christ as I realize my, 
my mortality. So there is a reason, though, with the rest of the text, why I don't believe there was a great revival in Revelation 11 is because normally in the Bible, when there's a great revival of people turning to Jesus, it's written about. The whole book of Acts is one group of people after another that had once been idolaters and now they're Christians and they're praising the Lord. I saw a man in the parking lot today. We baptized him a few months ago at Lake Cooley and today was his first day ever as a believer, a follower of Christ to participate in the Lord's Supper, Ricky. And he could not wait to tell me this is my first Lord's Supper as a saved man. This is what happens in the Bible when people get saved. They talk about salvation. And there's not any salvation to celebrate in Revelation 11. Revelation 11, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. I told you it's a loud book, which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, because you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations were angry. It's not a description of repentant nations. It's a description of angry nations. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servant, the prophets, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So we have no evidence in the end times there's going to be a great revival across the culture. The only revival that can occur in your life, it could be your life when you choose to come to the Lord. So I'll tell you this, when you read Revelation 11, especially the way it's set in, it's indented in most Bibles, It's indented that way because most scholars think that this was an early hymn. Uh, It was an early praise and uh, worship song that was used in the early church. And so the remainder of my time with you today is I'd like to give you five reasons that we rejoice when the seventh trumpet is blown. Five reasons we rejoice when the seventh trumpet is blown. Number one, the kingdom of God becomes the only kingdom in the universe. Again, our verse we've come to love today. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Last week when we were together, I told you the book of Revelation talks about two cities, the great city, which was Babylon or a pagan city, and then the holy city, which is the city of God in heaven two cities. Today, we're going to look at two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world uh, and the kingdom of our Lord, and they oppose one another. The word kingdom uh, in the New Testament, it comes from the word basileia. It occurs 162 times in the New Testament. The concept of kingdom is huge in, in the New Testament books. And uh, it basically means the rule and the reign of God. Wherever God is reigning in extraordinary power, there is the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ came to earth, that was God in coming to earth as a man. That's why Jesus said, hey, the kingdom of God is here. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Why does he say it's near? Because God himself in the form of a man is walking around on earth. So wherever Jesus is present, his kingdom is reigning and ruling. The kingdom of God has come. Look what happens whenever evil was defeated. 
Luke eleven twenty. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wherever the kingdom of God is reigning and ruling is the kingdom of God. And then even when disease was conquered and death was conquered, the last enemy, we would see another evidence of the kingdom of God. Jesus told his disciples, heal the sick who are the, and, uh, and tell them, uh, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So whenever sick people were healed, disease was overpowered by the power of God, there was the kingdom of God. So the reason that we love, <clears throat> love the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is because we see the full display in a moment in 33 years of, or his three years of public ministry, the kingdom of the world being defeated. Disease and death and, and demons. Everywhere Jesus is, they're conquered. And the reason that we love the book of Revelation is we get glimpses of what the kingdom of God looks like when there is no opposition to God in heaven. All purity, all joy, all power, all holiness, no opposition, no Satan, no devil, and no people serving him. So the plan of God for history is that the kingdom of God in heaven would rule on earth through the church and we'd be opposed by the kingdom of the world until Jesus comes back. And that's the big conflict that's occurring that's finally settled here with the blowing of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, there is no more kingdom of the world. So until then, though, our job as a church, every second of the day, our job as a church is to be the mouthpiece of God in heaven, announcing the kingdom of God to those on earth amidst the opposition of the kingdom of the world that doesn't want to hear about the kingdom of God. You can see the conflict. Matter of fact, you could describe the church as like an embassy. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., there's, there's, a, there's a section of nor in northwest Washington called, it's informally called Embassy Row, and it's all the embassies from around the world <clears throat> are stationed there in D.C. This is the Czech, this is the embassy in Washington, D.C. of the Czech Republic. It's located at 3900 Spring of Freedom Lane in Northwest Washington. <clears throat> this is a tiny outpost of the Czech Republic. Everything that happens in that building is to sort of help people get ready to go on visits to the Czech Republic if they live here in another kingdom called America. But this is totally different, totally smaller than the true kingdom of the Czech Republic in Prague, where I want to go today. It's much more beautiful and it's larger and it's, it's filled with more wonder. But the little embassy in D.C. represents all the beauty of the one that's in another land. So this is the purpose of the church. We are an embassy. We are the kingdom of God on earth, announcing to the people of the kingdom of the world that you're serving a false God, an untrue kingdom, a kingdom that will not last, a kingdom that will fall, and there's a king in heaven who invites you to an eternal kingdom, and this is an, can be an unbelievably intimidating task because we look so little in this embassy called the church 
compared to the great deal of kingdom of the world where we're located. And that's why we're so encouraged when the kingdom of the world uh, will become the kingdom of our Lord. It's talking about when the kingdom of the world will be swallowed up by the kingdom of God and of his Messiah. And the reason why he says and of his Messiah is because in the Old Testament, when God said, I'm going to bring about a new kingdom before the end of time, God said, I'm going to do it through a very special anointed, that's what the word Messiah means, anointed king that I send from heaven. And that's what the word Messiah means, that God is going to establish the great kingdom above all kingdoms through an anointed Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed king. And that's why the word is Messiah used. The church is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. You, you know, you may not know George Fred Handel very well. You may not know the 260-page oratory that he wrote called the Messiah. But if I were going to ask you, Messiah, Messiah, if there's anything, yeah, yeah, isn't that where the, the hallelujah chorus? It's like that's what we all know from the Messiah, the hallelujah chorus. And the hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah is written based on this promise in Hebrews, I mean, in Revelation 11. And that's why Handel uh, wrote the, the beautiful, uh, the chorus is just over and over again in the, in the hallelujah chorus. And he shall reign forever and ever, king of kings forever and ever, lord of lords forever and ever. And it's just like four minutes of glorious king of kings, lord of lords forever and ever, forever and ever. And it's just magnificent. And the Bible says in Revelation 11, that's what we will be singing forever and ever. And that's why we love. You don't have to stand. I know some of you come from a tradition. Whenever you hear the Messiah, you should stand. It's just a little 30-second clip from it, just a little foretaste of what will happen in heaven. I think a foretaste. Maybe a foretaste of a black screen. I'll do it one more time. Oh, it disappeared. Okay, so sorry. I had a little clip from the Messiah and in between the services, it went away, which may have been that it got rejected by the sound team. Number two, we are in the full presence of God. Five reasons, remember, five reasons we love, five reasons we love the blowing of the seventh trumpet. The second reason we love the blowing of the seventh trumpet is we're in the full presence of God for the first time in our life. We're in the full presence of God for the first time. Revelation eleven sixteen and the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Now, if you've been following along in Revelation since last November, you probably have said, haven't we seen this last phrase before? God who is and who was. And we did. This is the fourth time it's used in the book. But in chapter 1, this is what it sounds like. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Then in chapter 1, verse 8, we read again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. And then there's another one just like that in chapter 4. But you come to chapter 11 and something's missing. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, but not who is to come, because he's here. 
We cannot wait to sing this last, or this song in Revelation 11 that is omitting the last phrase because everything we have waited for the future is now the present and there's no more waiting. We're fully in the presence of God. You know, when Jesus Christ came to earth, people who saw him saw a glimpse of God. And that's why Jesus said to his disciples later, blessed are those who believe and do who don't see. Man, they were so blessed they saw God. Then in Revelation, John gets to see God. But until between Jesus and the book of Revelation, it's us. We're waiting for him who is to come. But it's, the phrase is omitted in chapter 11 because we will be there and we will see him just as everybody else has seen him. Third reason we rejoice that the trumpet is blown, we give thanks for the justice and the mercy of God. Chapter 11, verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So there's two groups of people that are mentioned at this point in the chapter. God's servants whom he will reward, God's enemies whom he will judge. Let's look at God's actions first toward his enemies. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. So here we have a description of the enemies of God. What makes someone an enemy of God? They hate God. They're an enemy of God. They hate his sovereignty. They hate his holiness. They hate the fact that he would say there's one way to heaven through Jesus Christ. And because of their hatred of God, his wrath will come upon them. Another description of those that are God's enemy is they hate everything that God loves. And therefore, the one descriptor of God's enemies is they seek to destroy everything God has attempted to create. This is why the enemies of God uh, hate life and they hate marriage. Anything God hates on, anything God loves on earth, the enemies of God despise. And they want to replace God's virtuous things with their, their idols and therefore the wrath of God is released. You know, we tend to be shy about God's judgment. It's interesting that these people, the first century church, actually included this as part of a praise and worship chorus. They're singing about that time in history when God will judge his enemies who have destroyed the earth. But we seem to be apologetic about that. I'll tell you why. We're apologetic about the judgment of God because normally our lives are so isolated and so protected by our design that we do not even know and see the real suffering of the world. We're seldom oppressed by anyone. We don't live under an oppressive regime. We're starting to a little bit now 
but it still cannot be compared to those who have lived throughout history from the first century and to those who live around the world now who've lived under oppressive tyrants and lived in a brutal culture that tries to destroy the church. Our problem is, the reason why we don't sing like this, we're not poor enough. We're not oppressed enough and we're not persecuted enough to rejoice in the justice of God. But you can be sure that the Christians of the first century and 21st century around the world now that do live lives quite different than us, they do rejoice that God has seen all of their suffering and he will take into account all that has happened. They rejoice that there is a God who has seen their villages burned and their people tortured and executed and they're comforted that there is a God who will destroy those who destroy the earth. The second group of people that are mentioned in this hymn are those whom God will reward. Verse 18, the time has come for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. If you ever want to know a definition of a Christian, what is a Christian? There's the, there it is right there. Those who revere the name of Jesus Christ. That's why in our opening statement, in our greeting to you every Sunday, we want you to come applaud God with us. That's what it means to revere God. It means to applaud God, to adore God, to cherish God, to delight in God. If your life is not marked by a delighting in, a revering, an adoring, an applauding of the name of Jesus Christ, you probably don't know him because this is the people that God rewards, those who revere the name of God Almighty and his son, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting here that these people, what are they living for? What are they looking for? They are looking for reward. They're singing about it. This is a hymn. They're singing about this is their praise chorus of the first century. Oh, we're going to get rewarded. Oh, we're going to get rewarded. Hallelujah, we're going to get rewarded. Probably sounded better than that. But that's what they sang about. The reward that was coming to them. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and they must believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I talk to people all the time that say, well, I just don't know. I don't feel it's right to be looking forward to rewards. And my response to them every time, would you please quit being more biblical than the Bible? We are to look forward to rewards, to be motivated by them. If you do not believe that God rewards sacrifices made in the follow, if you do not believe that God rewards sacrifices made in your following of Christ, you don't have a high view of God. You don't believe He's a Father who loves to reward children when they do the most right thing. In all likelihood, you don't think about future rewards. We don't think about future rewards because we've already rewarded ourselves with everything that we can purchase on this earth. There's really nothing in the future that will thrills us because we have it all now. But again, the people of the first century, they suffered so much loss for Christ 
And there's many people around the world that are suffering so much for Christ now, so much loss. They eagerly await God who will reward them for what they've lost. God has rewards for you that are greater than anything you could ever imagine. And that is foundational if you're going to live a life of sacrifice for Jesus. You believe he's going to reward you for what you've given away for him. The fourth reason we rejoice in the uh, blowing of the, of the trumpet is that we will have full access to God. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. I told you last week, I'll tell you until we finish chapter 22, the book of Revelation is written in a way that God talks about spiritual events that are real by using physical events that are not real. It's called figurative language. What I mean by that is last week that we saw that there is no temple in heaven. We saw that clearly at the end of chapter 22. The Bible says there is no temple it says that God is the temple, Jesus Christ is the temple, and you're not going to be surrounded by walls. You're going to be surrounded by love and purity and wisdom. And what's going to comfort you, what's going to embrace you is the power and presence of God. The walls of heaven are the living, is the living power of God. So you say, well, why does he say there's a temple here? Metaphor, figure of language, because he wants to talk to us about the Ark of the Covenant. He wants to make a, he, he's got it. He said, well, you won't know what the Ark of the Covenant is until you know what the temple is. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was a box. It was about three feet long and two feet wide in the Old Testament. And inside the box were the Ten Commandments. And in the Old Testament, uh, first it was a tent and later it became you know, somewhat of a beautiful stone temple. And this will be a, a picture of it right here. This is a, a rendition of what people think the temple looked like in the day of, of Jesus when it was rebuilt by Herod the Great. But in the back of the temple was a room called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, that's where the box went. <clears throat> the Ark of the Covenant was in the very back. And throughout all of biblical times, nobody could ever go back and see the Ark to see the box. Only once a year, one priest for a few moments could go back, but in order to go in that room, he had to carry incense with him that would produce so much smoke that he actually couldn't see the box. And there he would make sacrifices for all the people. But all of the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament could not take away our sin, and that's why we love that verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God. And that's why in Revelation 11, John talks about, he describes heaven as a temple where we have access to the Ark of the Covenant. He's trying to say, you can get as close as you want to God in heaven even the Apostle Paul says we are allowed to sit on the throne of Jesus with him. And so I love Hebrews, or Revelation chapter 11. You look at all the stuff that's happening. 
We're inside the embrace of God and all around God is lightning and rumblings and, and the earth, and earthquakes and a hailstorm. And, and yet there's no danger. All of this loudness is going on in heaven. All of this is around God and we're safe on the throne of God with him. And yet we're surrounded by smoke and fire and lightning and, 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 and a rainbow over God and all of this noise and all of this, and yet we, there's no harm to us because of Christ inviting us to come close to the safe God. You know, um, I had a privilege yesterday of doing a funeral for Bob McGlynn, uh, one of our older members who's been with us almost since the beginning of the church. And so Bob and I have enjoyed, along with you who've cared so much for his family over the past years as he and Kay aged, Y'all cared for him, but Bob loved the gospel. He, in his 20s, he was Catholic and never really heard the gospel. He didn't go to a place where the Bible was preached. It was a place where they talked more about religious traditions and religious leaders. But he was at a baptism service one day for his nephew in another church, and the gospel was preached. He heard about Christ, and he heard about the God of heaven who wants to atone for our sins and cleanse us by by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that day in his late 20s, Bob placed his faith in Jesus Christ. He became saved. He became a follower of Christ. But Bob had many hurdles to jump over that uh, had been a part of his life since he was young. And so when I went to see him two weeks before he died in the hospital down at Regional, I wasn't surprised. He'd, I came close to his bed. He could hardly, hardly whisper. And he said, Pastor, I want to go home. I want to go home. It suffered so much. And, and then he looked at me and said, Pastor, will, will Jesus have me? Will Jesus accept me? And you may say, well, gosh, I, I don't have any doubt. Let me tell you, when you were just moments away from seeing the King of Kings and you think about your life, you know, did I really pray enough? Well, of course, no. You know, did I give enough? No. But you're looking, I'm about to see the King. I could have done more. When you get, you know, you're thinking... And all he needed was a precious reminder just one more time of the blood of Jesus. So I just had a great time. I just, I just put my hand on Bob's head and I, and, uh, and I said, Bob, just think about the blood of Christ spilled over your hair and down your cheek and down across your neck and your shoulders and down your arm. And I put my hand across his leg and down his shin and his ankle and down to his feet. I said, the blood of Christ has covered every part of your body. Not one cell of your body is uncovered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not one thought, not, not one word, uh, not one action that's ever come out of your body. Has just, it's all been covered by the blood of, of Jesus. And it's, it's either all of the blood or it's nothing. It's you. And I said, let's just rejoice again that the blood of Christ has been shed for us. So, you know, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a minute. And I want to tell you, the reason I love celebrating the Lord's Supper it, because it, 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 it does cause us to brag about going to Jesus. But the only reason we can go to Jesus is because he came, he came to us. Of all the sites that are in New York City that I remember seeing when the, um, when the Twin Towers fell, this is called, uh, you know, people refer to it as the as 9-11 cross. Two days after the towers fell, this was actually in building number seven. Uh, still beam in, in building number seven, but tower one fell on it. 
This is the only thing in Building 7 that survived. It shattered everything else except a steel beam that formed a cross. And two, weeks, uh, two days after all of the dust settled, seven firefighters were going in Building Number 7, and they found this cross. And you can go to New York City today and see it in the museum. And so what I love about the cross of Jesus Christ, it reminds us the reason that we can have access to this glorious God and we can touch Him is because when He came to earth, He let the worst of the world and the worst of evil touch him. And he came to destroy death by allowing death to conquer him. And he died for all of your sin. When you look at that cross, I want you to look at that's all. If you want, if you want to believe by faith, that's where all of your sin is. Through a great battle, the greatest battle ever in the history of the world, Jesus Christ took all of your sin on the cross. And you can get rid of it today if you place your faith in Christ who died and rose again so you could go to the place where the kingdom of God will swallow up the kingdom of this world. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.